0: Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Catherine McKenna, former Minister of Environment and Climate Change Canada, former Minister of Infrastructure, and now the chair of the UN High-Level Expert Group on the Net-Zero Emissions Commitments of Non-State Entities. They could have used a better title, but still very important work. Catherine's also a lawyer, as well as a visiting fellow at Columbia University, and she runs an advisory firm called Climate and Nature Solutions. There's obviously a lot to talk about when it comes to climate action, and we touch on federal and provincial policies in different ways in the course of this conversation, but the core of our discussion focuses on Catherine's UN Working Group's recent report that calls out greenwashing and recommends radical transparency and accountability to make net zero pledges a reality. Catherine, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Always great to see you, Nate.
0: It is strange to be interviewing you outside of politics well you being outside of politics but you left politics and i was saying this to your staff before we started recording when i first read that you were leaving politics to make a bigger difference on climate action i have to admit some skepticism obviously you wanted to see your kids more too and and i completely understood that but i didn't fully appreciate that you would just immediately take on the role that you've taken on and and really have i think an outsized impact not only domestically but but now internationally In a role with the United Nations, and you have a recent report out of that working group that that you lead. So as a starting point, you say, and the report says the planet cannot afford delays, excuses, or more greenwashing. So let's start with greenwashing and the scale of the challenge. And let's start with the scale of the challenge before we get to how do we how do we address the challenge?
1: Okay, well, I was I didn't mean what I said I say what I mean, and I do what I say. Um, So I really did want to focus internationally um, on climate. Uh, Look, the the challenge is enormous. We have said, like the world has said, we want to stay below to 1.5 degrees and we're nowhere near there. I mean, with all the commitments that folks have made in good news, because I think it's also important to have good news on climate. I mean, we've probably gone from four and a half degrees to around two and a half degrees if people implement. And as we all know, implementing is hard, but that's still a long way off. And if you think about the impacts everyone's suffering from climate change already, um, I mean, half of Pakistan was underwater with flooding that uh, we've seen extreme heat. I mean, in Canada, as we know, the town of Lytton just basically incinerated, um, you know, the Arctic. It's its actually, you know, not just an impact on, you know, ice. It's like actually could destroy, you know, the culture of Inuit and their livelihood. So, We have a huge challenge. Now, in terms of my report, so it's focused on these net zero commitments. So people might say, what the heck is that? I see these signs of Amazon zero. What the heck are they saying? Generally, what people are saying is they're going to be net zero emissions by 2050 because that's what globally we need to do. Now, what is net zero? Because it's kind of everything in climate is just lame-o jargon. So I think, you know, it would be better if it was just zero emissions, right? Because zero is better than a net, which is undefined. But basically, it means we need to get to as close as zero emissions by 2050. And then we're going to have to do some way to address the emissions that are going to be remaining because we just don't even have the technology. There will be some emissions. So we'll have to do removals or something, you know, some way of of addressing those submissions. So, well, the the good news is 80% of the world's GDP is covered by net zero targets. So that's governments, businesses, financial institutions, cities and regions. So they're saying, yeah, great. We know this is it, the science, we're all in. But the bad news is there's no rigor. And and I know that you probably have folks who listen in here, you know, they have a sense of humor. I think that, you know, you have a sense of humor. So I I put this, I I put it in the context of... um, the Australians are really good on climate. No one's very good on climate comms, but, but the Australians are. And so they're like, there's this Sydney guy and he comes to the pub and he says to his friends, he's like, I'm really excited to tell you, I'm going to do some real changes. I'm going to stop drinking, um, but I need to do it in an orderly transition. So I'm going to do it by 2050 when I'm 101. Um, And then he says, well, because also, you know, I didn't drink every Tuesday, you know, for a while, that's going to give me a few more years. So maybe it's really 2055. And then, then the kind of clincher, and this is kind of for the climate nerds, <laughs> which I'm a climate nerd for sure. So you Nate, sorry. Um, he says, and then I'm going to have a beer fridge and I'm going to call it carbon capture and storage. So um, the point is it's very easy as everyone knows um, to make, commitments, like whether it's your New Year's New Year's commitment or net zero by 2050, it's really hard to do the work. And so that is what we are looking at. Um, we're looking at standards and criteria, like what do you need to be doing for net zero commitments? And it's non-state actors who, so once again, not language that's super accessible. So it means cities, regions, businesses, and corporations. But underlying this, the secretary general was very clear, He said, like, we do not have any more time for these, you know, fake commitments, greenwashing. So people that are saying companies in particular, I think that's what we're really talking about. Often large multinationals, including fossil fuel companies who have like these beautiful billboards. You can see them. I've seen them at the airport. You've probably seen them or you go into... You know, the you go into the grocery store, or wherever, and they're like, "Yeah, we're not too. We're all in on climate." They have a nice, beautiful picture of like the planet or nature, um, but they're doing nothing, or worse. Um, and let's be clear with fossil fuel companies, and often those who fund them, i.e. financial institutions, banks, they're actually increasing the problem because they are investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure. So that's what we were tasked with doing. We were tasked with like, in a way, kind of legally kind of coming up with standards and criteria, but also underlying it was like, there's a lot of greenwashing and greenwashing comes in many ways. So as I say, it's just like having a target and not doing any work. Um, it's investing in things like new fossil fuel infrastructure. People are like, wait a minute, I don't really get it. How can you mean that? zero climate, putting up your hands, saying I'm a climate leader and I'm going to do more, you know, more cool oil or gas, but it's also credit. So I think people have also heard a lot about credits. So people are like, well, businesses are like, well, um, instead of doing the work, um, I'm going to continue to pollute, and I'm just using the worst case, but I'm going to continue to pollute. I'm going to buy cheap credits or offsets that potentially are, you know, in an indigenous community, actually doing harm in that community. Like, that's not actually that extreme a case. There are many examples of this. And obviously that does nothing for the planet, but greenwashing is terrible because it makes us feel better that we're actually doing the work while we may be actually exacerbating the problem. And it's focused people on the on 2050 as opposed to today, tomorrow, in five years, 10 years.
0: So I think that's a good jumping off point for what does the work look like in practical terms to take what is a pledge and could be greenwashing if we only have the pledge and certainly if we act in the opposite way from that pledge. And so starting with taking what is a long-term target 2050 and making it into a short-term actionable practical target, many of the lessons seem when I was reading your report Seem applicable to governments. Certainly, we just went through a climate accountability legislation debate in the the last parliament, obviously, and we now have a climate accountability law that doesn't incorporate a 2025 target the way that you are recommending, but a 2030 target and and then interim targets thereafter in between 2030 and, and 2050. That seems like a good first step to make that those pledges a reality. But you're talking at the non-state, so cities should do, be doing the same thing, regions should be doing the same thing, large businesses should be doing the same thing. And so this is about showing customers, presumably, and, and showing governments. And, and so one question that I would have is, to what extent is this a further commitment we're expecting them to make, but then they just blow past it five years from now? Or are there are there teeth to these targets, these short-term targets that, that we're wanting them to set?
1: So, I mean, I think like, first of all, we're a UN body, a UN like expert, great, but I'm in a body we're <laughs> created for this. But it, but we spent a lot of time thinking about accountability. So, at the the last recommendation is we got to regulate. I mean, we need to, and in Canada, needs to do this too. Right now, Europe is really leading the way. They've said, okay, we're going to make sure all big companies have a net zero target aligned with the science. So that also is really important that they have a transition plan, which would require, you know, interim targets, but also how you get, what are you doing? And then you need to disclose So, but short of that, how do you ensure folks do it? Well, there's some things that we've actually said that we want people to be doing. So there's like internal accountability. So internal accountability is like you need to align the incentives. So CEO, uh, board, executive compensation should be linked to getting outcomes on climate. And the reason that's important is by 2050, as my son (laughs) said to me, he's like, my youngest son, he's like, Well, everyone's going to be, the CEOs are going to be dead by then, won't they? By 2050. I was like, well, they're definitely not going to be the CEOs. So (laughs) like, you know, you need to have short-term incentives. Um, So that is obviously one thing. Two is this disclosure. And there is a lot of movement on the disclosure piece, but what came out of like, sometimes you don't hear a lot about these things, but there is now a a big movement to have a, a data portal which would have transparent, comparable data for everyone, um, major actors, whether or not they make a net zero pledge, like just putting them on this and actually showing what they are doing on the criteria. Um, And interestingly, the report came out and, and the competition bureau, I quite liked this because I'm a former competition (laughs) lawyer. um, They, uh, they had before them an application by um, the Canadian association of physicians for the environment going after the national gas association um, on misleading advertising with respect to these these kind of these kind of pledges and that a couple days after our report came out the bureau decided to take and to investigate to launch an inquiry and they referenced our report so there are different ways that these things come into being i've also noticed because you and i have a lot of lawyer friends so there's like lawyers and business associations Like, they're all sending things out to their members or their clients and saying, hey, like, take note of this report. So, you know, I think it is something that people are taking seriously. And I should be really clear because there are companies who are working really hard on this. And it's hard, right? Like, it is hard to figure out when you say emissions. It's not only your direct emissions. It's like scope one, scope two, scope three. So it's your direct emissions. It's the emissions used to make your product. It's also your value chain, your supply chain. So like, say, take a bank, a bank, 95% of the emissions would not be theirs. It would be, you know, people they invest in. And so, you know, that's a lot of work and and there is a lots of good progress folks a lot of you know there are a lot of leaders here that are doing the work and so i make the case i wrote an article in time because i was like how do i translate like, like net zero pledges 2050 to regular people and I think what you're seeing, like to the extent there's transparency, and that's a real problem because there isn't transparency. So sometimes people will say they're reducing emissions, they're actually just buying cheap credits, but you can't actually figure that out. Or you don't know if they just have a target and they're doing anything internally. But if you're able to bring some transparency, who's going to care? Like you might be, well, like, you know, Catherine and Nate. Well, who cares? I mean, that's we're two people and, you know, but the climate world, of course, but that's still very small. But young people, I talk to young people all the time and they want to work with employers that care about climate action, but not just in like, we care about it. They're pretty savvy. Like if I look at, you know, kids and I talk to them, they're like, yeah, come on. Like, you know, company X, they're not a climate lead. And so um, they think about this a lot. So, you know, if you have access to this data, you would say, well, actually, I don't think I want to go to that company. I want to go to this company. They're actually doing real things. Um, if you're a, if you're a retiree or you're looking at your pension fund you know and you see you know oh your company says they're net zero and you kind of investigate and you find out they're investing in new fossil fuels i think like re- regular people would be like that doesn't seem very consistent so i think that you can vote with your dollars Um, So I think that there, and then of course there's, there's actually real risk. I mean, there's risk of litigation, um, like misleading advertising, but other ways that you could take action. And there's just also, I mean, just what I always tell businesses, like you got to future proof your business, right? This is where the world's going. So you got risks. Of you know you know getting caught out or not not actually transitioning um, and people not wanting to give you money like you're not going to people aren't investing in you, or um, and it, and apparently the head of CPPIB the Canada Pension Plan they uh, have said that they are going to look at whether you know companies are real and their net zero commitments now yeah I said it's, it's, it's to give it place- should be the standard reset because there's well, different ways of doing net zero but that's like those have real impacts
0: well it's to give teeth to the e in esg in a way because when i and i'm glad you started with your last recommendation and answer to that question because i think that is the right frame of mind to say we need regulated radical transparency and you rightly say obviously consumers will respond in some ways but you do ensure you avoid misleading advertising on that front as well that's where my mind went when i was reading the report on radical transparency i went yeah you know if companies were forced to articulate a short-term plan to disclose where they are actually at and whether that aligns with any reasonable short-term plan, it would be very clear in some cases that they would be completely offside their net zero pledge and their net zero commitment, and they would be misleading the Canadian public in, in, in that regard. And so I, I think I think that's right. And I think ultimately the frame that we've placed on governments to say we need this level of transparency in these short-term targets. The same principles apply, as I say, to the private sector, though a small question that I had when I was reading your your time article, because you did rightly say governments need to regulate compliance to level the playing field and get all companies on board. When we say all companies, I can imagine the big banks here in Canada can tomorrow, if they wanted to, hire the staff and get this done. It would it would have a cost, but they could easily do it. They make enough money. And this is banks sh- should be one of the first institutions, if not the first that we are putting into a framework like this. What about the Main Street businesses and then the small and medium-sized enterprises they collectively add up and make an impact, but it's very hard for them to achieve something akin to the radical transparency that you guys are calling for.
1: Yeah. I mean, so we did deal with this. I mean, the, the thing about these mandates, right. It was so big. It was like deal with all of the cities, like cities and regions in the world. Okay. Well, you know, Delhi is very different from Toronto or like a small town is very friendly. So there was that. And then of course you had the small and medium sized enterprise and layered on that, you also have developed versus less developed Countries. So one of the members, and I had super awesome members from around the world. It was the most diverse ever. More women than men, but it had environmentalists, it had a CEO, it had a former uh, governor uh, of the Bank of China, it had you know you name it. It had a broad diversity, which was really great. But one of our members, who was a CEO, she was from Colombia, and she's like, like, how the heck is this going to work in the context of a small, medium sized enterprising in Colombia, let alone in downtown Toronto. And so we acknowledge that we acknowledge. And in the regulation section, we also say you got to start with the big players. But what's interesting, and when I talk to because I do a lot of talking with companies and we do a lot of consultations on this with bigger ones that this is super nerdy. So I will translate into English after I say it, but. Someone's scope three is another person's scope one. So what does that mean? Like if you were a big company, say Walmart, they've launched this one gigaton challenge to deal with uh, reducing emissions across their value chain. So they are the suppliers like you help them because you're now committed because to be net zero, you need to deal with your whole supply chain. So now you are actually even though these folks may not have net zero commitments themselves, you're going to them and saying, here's a toolkit. Um, you know, here are opportunities we're going to support this. Cause first of all, there's an education component. You need to know your baseline emissions. Like, obviously there's a lot of work. So I think that's a positive thing because I think that of course we got to start with the big players. And by the way, that's where most of the emissions are. So we have to go to like where the emissions are. Let's be practical in life um, and where the money comes from. Cause as I say, actually what's, what was good about this is sometimes it's better to alleviate, like relieve complexities. And I was like, okay, when we talk about net zero, two two things have to happen. And there's a cross-cutting thing. One, emissions need to go down very quickly now. Two, we need money to go to clean at scale. And three, we need to think about a just transition and equity throughout. And so when you do that, it's like, you know, ESG is obviously very important, but more complicated. Like this is even a sub of E. This is called climate, right? Or away, in a way, emissions. Although there's... You know, social and governance issues also, as you see in my report when I talk about, you know, governance, no lobbying, things like that against climate action. So I think that there's certainly there needs to be support. We talk about this providing support to small and medium sized enterprises. But it's a good discipline for anyone, because to be honest, and this is what if you care about climate, like sometimes we always talk about the cost. So of course there's the cost of inaction. So your competitors are doing things, but it's also often it's about being more energy efficient, right? So you save money. And I'm saying when I was minister of environment and climate change, like I would go to these small businesses. I remember going and I wish I could remain, remember the name of the company. I think it was in wealth. And they just like, the guy was an engineer. He's just like, I just want to save money. So I went to his warehouse And he had all these different things. Like he had fans pushing air down. He had doors that automatically closed, as opposed to people leaving the doors open. Like he just had a bunch of really like better insulation. All these things. He said, "I'm saving money." He's like, "Actually, I break even or save money by doing this." Plus, I've got the most motivated employee base because he said they're all in. They, They, you know, our product isn't necessarily something you would think is like a. Green product, but the way we're doing it really motivates people, and so I was like, "So there's that saving money, always good. Right. Motivating employees, always good, and uh, also the innovation piece. Like this is where it really is an opportunity because we need innovation. Like we need solutions and." When you figure out, okay, how are we going to do something better? That's where you get real solutions. Like people think hard and that's an opportunity for Canada. One random example, uh, a company called GHG said, um, they were just written up in the report on business. Great article. If People want to look at it. a really awesome Canadian company. They um, are out of Montreal. They do methane detection tech- technology. They use satellites to see where there's methane coming out from oil and gas landfills and methane matters because it is 80 times more potent than carbon dioxide in the short term. So if we want to say 1.5 degrees, we need to do it. And so they came up with this idea because they know people need to measure methane, you know, including as part of net zero commitments. We were clear about that. And so there are huge opportunities. That's kind of you know, a very specific one. But across the board to innovate and help decarbonize and make money. I don't know. I I try to put it like, yeah, it's you got to do this and like it's kind of a drag, so like some things are drag. It's hard. But on the upside, you're doing right for the planet, so that should actually make you feel better, but also motivating employees, pro- saving money, innovating.
0: And in some cases, both this comes from a business perspective, but also governments are challenged by this as well. Canada is in a difficult spot with our oil and gas industry, for example, and some companies, both in the oil and gas space, but I would think despite the efforts of Maple Leaf Foods, for example, to take on more plant-based foods, they're still they're not even close to net zero given the nature of animal agriculture in that way. And so at some point credits become necessary. As you describe them as high integrity carbon credits in voluntary markets, should be used for beyond value chain mitigation, but cannot be counted toward interim emission reductions required by its net zero pathway. So put that into layman's terms. <laughs>
1: Okay, you're, you're you're okay. So you've got a target, say you got a 2025 target, 2030, 2035 target. Obviously there's a pathway to get net to net zero, right? So all the way out to say your your target is 2050. So you've got this line. And that line is based on the science and what you should be able to do. So you need to do those reductions yourself, like whatever reductions you need to do. Maybe you need to change to using renewable energy, whatever. Above that line, if you want to do your emissions, your existing emissions that are not on your net zero pathway, then like you could do that. You can use credits, although there's a lot of work that needs to be done on credits. And there are a couple different bodies that have been established to do this, because right now, Saying high integrity credits, what does that even mean, right? And there's a lot of people in this space. That was my question. (laughs) Well, no, but we can't solve everything. Okay, like we can't solve everything. People who are putting more time into it. It's happening though. It's happening. They will come up with what high integrity cuts, but at the end of your journey. So the other place where you absolutely need to use credits, although hopefully it's as small as possible is what we call like removal. So you're not going to be able to go to be a hundred percent, no emissions. So then you do removals. Now people are also trying to define like permanency, like what is a permanent removal? And it's, these are really tricky science questions because you look in California so you know we talk about nature-based solutions. So trees, trees. Well, what happens if everything's burning because of forest fires? So that you've invested in credits that are supposed to store carbon instead of releasing it. So obviously this is a tricky space. But I think the principle is actually not that hard. That you can't get out of doing anything and just saying I'm going to buy cheap credits. You actually have to do as much work as you know is on your in your target, like your pathway, all the way to net zero. And you can do credits beyond that for good reasons, because it's a good thing to do because you feel, you know, you have historical emissions or things you want to do. It's good to invest in nature, whatever it is, but you have to do the work. And I think that's just like life. Like you can't, you know, you can't we're not going to offset our way to tackle climate change. But even to put it in a more positive space. So there's been a real movement again, like there's been a lot of investigations by journalists into credits. And they're like, this is ridiculous. Like these credits are not only not actually doing anything, um, they're actually bad in many cases. They have unintended consequences. We have a food security issue. They're they're taking land that should be used for food, um, or they're they're impacting indigenous people, they're not getting properly compensated, whatever it is. Um, But imagine if you were like EasyJet. So EasyJet was doing credits and they got called out like they were using crappy credits and they actually made said, it's quite brave. Is that actually we're going to do the work on our pathway? We're going to not buy credit. And I was like, well, imagine that. Okay, so EasyJet is really big. So EasyJet is said they're going to do low carbon fuels. They're going to look at obviously electric planes. Like all those things will create an innovation loop and they will bring down the costs of the technology. They'll innovate, the cost will come down. So I'm someone who actually believes in the market and that these incentives are actually really important because the small, like, you know, company that you know maybe has this tiny airline like they can't probably afford to like get massive innovations or the innovation costs right now so it's going to bring down those costs because someone's done the work instead of just buying cheap credits so i don't know i mean that's that's kind of my pitch because i have to pitch people i have to say like we're not being unrealistic here we're just being like this is what we all need to do and 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 by the way, the reality is, and you know this, like in government, it's hard. We have to report transparently. We are not in there anymore, but you know, Canada has to report transparently on its emissions. And 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 there's a lot of focus. So people often, this is another area where we 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 actually went like we had 10 recommendations. I'm very focused on so being very clear. And we actually went for real things. We all, we say, like, you can't just say the intensity of your emissions need to go down as opposed to your absolute right. your overall right, emission. Right. That's yeah. also a thing. like people are like, well, the intensity of emissions go down. We hear that from the oil sands. Well, the planet, well, that's not a useless measure. Obviously you want your intensity of emissions to go down. The planet doesn't really care about intensity of emissions. They care about like what your actual emissions are. So if your intensity is going down, but your actual emissions are going up because you're producing more, that's obviously a problem. So anyway, we try to be quite practical and in this report, just say real things. Cause I think, we need to be very clear to people that are responsible for committing to net zero and making it similar to what governments have to do. Um, Although, as you say, government is hard and they aren't necessarily doing everything they need. And and on
0: that front, I mean, you were in government, you're you're not in government now. You are freer, one would think, to speak your mind, which is a nice thing. When I looked at the 40 to 45 percent commitment in the emission reductions plan, it's obviously an improvement over where we were. And In the climate accountability law, the the best I could secure in terms of a compromise and working with the government was to make sure that the government would have to revisit its 2030 target by no later than 2025. So I I couldn't get a 2025 target, but I got a reconsideration by no later than 2025, which seemed a useful exercise in its own way. At the same time, where I was more sympathetic to credits living in the political environment that I still live in, at least, I mean, if the government's only going to commit to 40 to 45% reduction, and they are going to work as hard as they can to get there. And we're going to measure them success or failure as against that target. But I think we should be going even further than that. And so I would say, is there not a role for credits to push the government to do even more over and above that what they would have? You know, They're going to do this and maybe credits yeah. will push them to do even more. So it's, there still seems to me to be value in that conversation. But I take the point back, which is that when you're looking at greenwashing, If you have this open acceptance of credits and you're not much more stringent and hardened to the conversation, you end up just creating this completely wide open floodgate where just everyone uses credits and doesn't actually do the action to reduce emissions.
1: Well, I mean, I would say so to be clear, the the 40 to 45 percent. I mean, the only thing about that is that no country probably is exactly Like even those targets are not necessarily the 1.5 aligned, but I I mean, like 40 to 45% is very, it's very ambitious. We have said, like, take it that that is fine, that that's, that that target is good. We have said you can go beyond that, right? Like we have said you, you have to do that though. Like the government will have to show that it's going to meet that Of course you can do. Credits beyond that. But the other thing that comes up and now we're really like in like people are like, oh, my gosh, this is getting so like in the in the really in the weeds.
0: <laughs> That's OK. But, but
1: when we met with Oxfam and we met with Greenpeace and we met with others, they said it's very hard to get a handle on the credits piece, like how much people are committing in credits. But they're like, there's not even enough land for the credits that people are saying, like, right. put aside, are they high integrity? Uh, like put aside all of that there's not even enough land. So I think we have a challenge, right? And this is of course the challenge with climate change because everyone's supposed to do their part, but it's hard to add it all up. And so that's a real challenge because if everyone's like, okay, I want to do all these other things, like the unintended consequences of credits are like actually a real thing. Yeah,
0: No, that's a good point. It's a good point back.
1: So, okay, there we are. We've nerded out. Have we nerded out on this? We don't want people to tune out of your podcast, although I bet. Oh, that's okay. No, if anyone's
0: listened to the podcast in the last, hundred episodes or however many episodes we've done so far. I mean, they know that this, we get into the weeds on policy and that's, that's a good thing. My last federal question, actually, uh, because while the principles you are focused on, you are applying from the UN working group as against non-state actors. So cities, multinationals and to regions. But as I say, the principles still, when I read, when I read it, I was like, these are all good lessons for the federal government in Canada. And One of which, and this is a a continued frustration, we talk about investment in fossil fuels. And you have a line in the report, a, a strong recommendation to end the exploration for new oil and gas fields, the expansion of oil and gas reserves, and oil and gas production. Now, we've had a difficult conversation at times in Canada because of the oil and gas sector. And we have obviously significant federal support into building. A pipeline to nowhere of sorts. But when it comes to the EDC in particular and continued investment in fossil fuels via that crown agency. We've talked about phasing out fossil fuel subsidies. I mean, there are small subsidies if there are subsidies at the federal level, except with EDC. So if I were taking the lessons learned from your report and applying it at the federal level, EDC should be out of the business of investing in fossil fuels.
1: Well, new fossil, new fossil fuel supply. I mean, I, but, but subsidizing anyway, you shouldn't be doing like okay let's just there's a lot of things to unpack here Um, (laughs) i I am not in government so i can say you can say
0: whatever you want that's why i asked the question
1: okay so let's just be clear what's going on in canada i mean it's happening globally we have oil and gas companies they're making hand over fist in money because of an illegal war not because they've been amazing they're just because of an illegal war and then what are they doing with that money instead of like but they and they all have net zero commitments right (laughs) like i think like at least through their trade association or whatever and so they say, we're going to be net zero, but we're going to continue to expand and push the government to expand fossil fuel supply. We're not going to do the investment we need in clean to reduce our emissions, but also to diversify. <laughs> and then we're going to demand, we're going to give huge amounts of money through back to, you know, through shareholder buybacks and executive compensation and we're going to trash the government for not giving us more fossil fuel subsidies. Like, I don't even know, right? Like, where do we start with that one? Like, even if you didn't, like, if anyone did that, right? Like, you're making Hanover for some money and you're saying you've got to do this, you're committing to this. And you're saying, well, actually, we're not really committing to that unless the government commits to that, even though we have loads of money. Like, anyone did that, I think that would not be cool but the reality is 80% of the problem is fossil fuels when it comes to climate change like i think sometimes we get confused like i'm a very simple person sometimes because we get we get so in the weeds of things which you need to do on climate you got to go high low but i mean at the highest level we have to deal with fossil fuels <laughs> and so the fact we have a government body that's you know, investing, I subsidizing while they won't do it themselves while they say and advertise that they're, you know, climate leaders. I, I think we got a problem. I want to say one other thing, because I think there's some confusion. Um, because I hear this from folks. Um, you know, well, Canada has to save Europe. Okay. The reality is no one in Europe thinks Canada's fossil fuels in the future that are not built and not permitted are gonna save uh Europe. Like By that, I mean in particular LNG. I hear lots about LNG. By the way, when I was minister, we had a very challenging project. We approved it. Did it ever get built? No, because it was too risky. It was too risky when I was minister, like I was probably two years in. How much do we think the risk is of a stranded asset right now when Europe is, is actually figuring out how to leapfrog? Fossil fuels in the short term, of course, they're increasing emissions, of course, they're looking for any supply. Um, So that is a bit of a myth. And we have to start doing some myth bustings. And we also have to also look at Canada's emissions, both direct and indirect. Scope three, we are contributing to the problem. I mean, if we want to spend colossal amounts of money, we should spend colossal amounts of money on renewable energy projects in Canada and abroad especially in less developed countries we should also contribute to loss and damages because Canada historically we've contributed a lot through fossil fuels so I think like that sounds like a bit of a rant but in a way I'm just actually being normal like you know just like on like normal business principles or economic principles we need to we need to really step back I also worry that we're over invested in our, and it's a risk to our country.
0: Yeah, it's an economic risk. When 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 you when you look at where the world is going, this is what we have this conversation at the industry committee. And we had an organization come to us and, and I put it to them, Do you do you believe in net zero? And they said, Well, of course we believe in net zero by 2050, but then they disputed every possible action to get us there. And then by the end, they said, Well, actually, net zero is pretty ambitious. And by ambitious, they really meant unrealistic. And so they didn't actually support net zero. And so the really man is we wanted to say we care about it, but we don't actually care about it. And at the end of the day, the the, the message back to that collection of companies and people who, who who believe that is to say the transition is going to happen with or without us, because this is where the world is going. And Europe is not going to be relying upon Canadian LNG in the year 2040. It just is it is not going to be relying on on. On fossil fuels, so if we care about future-proofing our economy, we have to take this much more seriously. Now, I've been critical, you know, in in a friendly questioning way of some federal policies that haven't matched the criteria and the recommendations that you've made, because I think the report that you've the bright line sort of rules that you're setting down here around greenwashing apply across the government and non-governmental spectrum. But I I would be remiss if I wasn't critical of the provincial government here at the same time when we talk about nature and climate, because. We are today, at the federal level, strengthening environmental protections with S5, a bill to strengthen the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. And at the very same time, the provincial government is saying we need to build housing. That's a worthwhile pursuit. But they are looking to the green belt and completely reversing a promise that was made in 2018. You know, Doug Ford stands in front of the cameras and says, I'll never touch the green belt. And now they're touching the green belt and they don't need to touch the green belt to build those 50,000 homes. We can build those. We need to build homes, but we can build them elsewhere. You in your work as environment minister, your work now at the UN, but also in in your day to day where you're focused on nature based solutions. How would you describe what Doug Ford is doing in the province of Ontario with respect to the green belt?
1: I mean, appalling. I don't know. How can I can I say it in (laughs) a Like also, uh, I don't know. I, just, I was just setting you up on that one. It's way. not, it's super sketchy. Like, it's also, he's, you know, kind of lied. Because, okay, so let's just unpack it. Oh, he's one. straight up,
0: he's straight he up He initially lied.
1: said, you know, I'm going to develop a green belt, I guess. All his developer friends are like, amazing, It's great. And then, like, there was a reaction, because guess what? People care. And it's actually beyond party lines. And I think we had to get post-partisanship as you try. I think like this is like regular farmers, like like people who who like who enjoy walking on the land, who care about nature. Like, you know, they were like up in arms. So he had to backtrack. And like the video still out there, I retweeted it. It's like him, he's like, the people have spoken. So we are not, we are never or whatever. I don't know we will never
0: say. touch the green belt. We'll
1: never touch the and green belt. We and we then are. lo and the behold, under the guise of building houses. And dealing with immigration, we're going to go and develop the greenbelt. And by the way, we're going to do it in a really sketchy way. We're going to like sell off land before I make this announcement that can't be developed, and now it potentially will be able to be developed so people like loads of money. Okay, so obviously there's a lot of problems in that. But beyond that, like the reality is, you don't get land back. Like it's gone. If, you, if this happens, it's gone, and you have other problems. Like first of all, the, the fallacy of this having anything to do with housing or or helping uh, housing outcomes. You can go look at what Jen Keesmet writes uh, or says. Mike Moffat, all sorts of the like people who think about these issues. So they've de- Shoshana Sachs. Lots of people have debunked that. So I think we got to take that because sometimes people are like, "Well, if I've got a choice between you know green belts and houses, well, I'll choose houses." That's wrong. If you believe that, that's not true. There's not This is not a housing play. Plus, it also exacerbates existing problems. We have like when I go to Toronto, the problem of congestion on the roads or lack of services in these communities is just going to be exacerbated. We need to intensify. And then let alone saying, I don't know if Ontario, they probably haven't made the promise. But I mean, if you're going to be net zero, there's no way. Building in the green belt is going to help you be net zero. You need to stop building more highways, start intensifying, actually doing things, you know, in the core, also providing services to people who desperately need services um, and people need green space. And I think, you know, COVID really showed this, that when I was minister of infrastructure, I was racking my brains to think about ways that we could support communities, having opportunities to. Uh, increase green space, local green space, because we realize that there's an inequity that lots of people don't have backyards. Lots of people live in very large apartment buildings, especially in Toronto, and they need access to green space. Um, And so, I mean, it's appalling on so many levels. um, And I I just hope for anyone who's listening to this, I'm sure you care, um, that people are up in arms because politicians need to be held to account. And guess what? They listen to people. Doug Ford listened once. That's why he didn't want to go in front of the camera and say, I'm never going to develop these like the public has spoken. So it was sounded very important. And the way he said it, it was like, I'm chastened and I'm going to listen to the public. Well, listen to the public one more time. So I hope that people, you know what, you are able to deal with the notwithstanding clause and, you know, you know, attempts to force, you know, uh, action that was in, in a labor perspective, stand up for nature, <laughs> because it actually literally. Once it's gone, it's gone. And there's another impact of this. And, and this is also, you know, worrying. I see a lot of cities doing um, and towns working really hard on climate. But I mean, this is also railroading on the wishes of communities. So that Hamilton, I mean, I think there's many communities that have said, like, we do not want these developments, um, even in Ottawa, giving these big mayor powers so you can do these develop, like push ram through things like that is not what people want. And so I think people power to the people. We saw it on climate, you know, young people marching on the street, put a lot of pressure on the government and people would say, oh, is it stressful that people are like calling you out for buying a pipeline or doing these things? I was like, no, it's great because I want more ambition. And if we can demonstrate that this is what people care about and we're being pushed, that actually has an impact, as you know well, Nate, that has an impact on government policy um so um also there's also like rich people are getting like rich developers are getting richer to do this like that's also just
0: it, it it is an incredibly cynical and transactional approach to government and they are a government that will do what they can get away with and so your answer back really is to say as as citizens across the province of Ontario let's not let them get away with it and and I think too on on issues of climate I think you're right that We need incredibly strong accountability. The the accountability mechanisms we build for ourselves at the government level, this radical transparency, the radical transparency that if we were to follow through on the recommendations in your report for non-state actors, the transparency only works if citizens then hold companies and governments accountable for failing to meet their obligations that we discover by virtue of that transparency. So uh, keep up the good work. I appreciate you joining me and I, I know we'll stay in touch. And so, yeah, I, I look forward to seeing more of the impact you make. You just
1: keep on pushing, Nate.
0: Right? Yeah, exactly.
1: On and keep on having, you know, people get into the nerdy policy details because actually policy, it does matter. And I'm sure your listeners all appreciate Nate's awesome. So, <laughs> thanks, Kelly. bye.
0: Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. We could have kept on going for another hour, I'm sure, and it's great to see Catherine continue to show climate leadership on the world stage. If you care about these issues, her final point is a very important one. We all need to make our voices heard, and that means holding elected representatives like me accountable, and even more so, the government's responsible for action at both federal and provincial levels. One last note on the Green Belt here in Ontario. The provincial government's own Housing Affordability Task Force wrote, and I quote... A shortage of land isn't the cause of the problem. Land is available, both inside the existing built up areas and on undeveloped land outside green belts. Most of the solution must come from densification. Green belts and other environmentally sensitive areas must be protected. So, there you have it. As always, you can reach me at info at beynate.ca if you have any ideas for guests or topics. Please leave a positive review on your platform of choice if you like what we're doing. And otherwise, until next time.